Thank you, Shauna. That was beautiful. Wonderful. Good morning, Woodland Hills. Good to see all of you. I'm Greg Boyd, the senior pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Romans. Just kidding. Luke. Luke, Luke. We're in the book of Luke. We're uh, dealing with a passage that concerns the crucifixion of Jesus. And I want to entitle this message, Debt Free. Because reality is that, in fact, you are. Now, I'm, maybe you're not at all debt-free when it comes to the economy. A lot of us aren't these days. But uh, in terms of our relationship with God, debt-free. My conviction is that this is a message that if, if we can get this on the inside, there are some people who will just, maybe for the first time in your life, uh, experience the freedom of living without a debt over your head as it concerns your relationship with God. This is going to be one of those messages. It's more of a teaching thing than anything else. Sometimes I kind of go more motivational, sometimes more teaching. This is a little bit theologically intense, so keep your thinking caps on. I encourage you to take notes. You've got note-taking capacities in the uh, bulletin there. Uh, I I encourage you to hear me out on this whole thing. Uh, you, You have to get the whole message to get the balance of this. But this is something I think that is so absolutely crucial essential to our understanding of who God is and what our relationship with him is. We are so good at uh, minimizing, putting parameters around the beauty of God and the forgiveness of God. This is a message that's calling us uh, to have the courage to believe that he is as beautiful as he reveals himself to be on the cross. And so we're in Luke chapter 23, um, and I'll be reading verses 26 through 34. I'm making a few comments as we go through this. I want to first pray. Father, give us the courage, the courage, the courage to believe that you are as as breathtakingly beautiful as you reveal yourself to be in this passage. God, remove the blinders. Let forgiveness flow and freedom flow. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Indeed, Lord, set your children free. Somebody, Lord God, here in the auditorium or listening on podcasts or some other way, Lord, they're, they're just in bondage. Maybe they don't even know it. They just, they're so used to the weight that they carry that it's their normal. But Lord, lift that weight. Remove the debt. Helps to live in the year of Jubilee where all debts have been erased. And the freedom and the joy and the peace that comes with that. Holy Spirit, invade us right here and right now. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. As the soldiers led Jesus away, they seized Simon of Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. Usually the criminal had to carry their own cross, or at least the cross beam of the cross, uh, as they were on their way to crucifixion. But Jesus was weakened by the, the terrible beatings, floggings that he had received, and so was unable to do that. So the Romans just grabbed this bystander, Simon of Cyrene, who was a Jew who had come to celebrate the Passover, and they made him carry the cross. The Romans had the authority to do that. And so we have Simon carrying the cross behind Jesus. I'm going to talk about that a little more next week. Moving on. A large number of people followed him, including women, who mourned and wailed for him. That, by the way, shows you that the crowd we looked at last week was hollering, crucify him, crucify him, did not represent everybody in in Jerusalem. That was a self-selected crowd uh, that had been kind of handpicked by the Jewish authorities. But Jesus turned and said to these women, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. 
For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if the people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? This is the third time in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus mourns for Israel, mourns for Jerusalem, pronounces this woe of this impending judgment that's coming on Israel. For several centuries, the Jewish leadership and many of the Jewish people had been pushing God away. And there's going to come a time where God was going to say, as he so often does throughout Scripture, if you want to push me away, I will go. But when God goes and vacates the premises, well, disastrous things happen. Because now evil can have its way. That's the judgment of God. And there's going to come a time where God was going to withdraw his protection and all mayhem was going to break loose because the Romans were going to have their way with Jerusalem. And that all came to pass in 70 AD and it was gruesome and it was barbaric. That's when this, this prophetic word was fulfilled. Um, and what Jesus is saying here in this last phrase is this. If they're treating the innocent son of God this barbarically while the tree is green, while there's still a, a semblance of health, God is still somewhat here, well then what's going to happen when God withdraws his protective presence and now evil is allowed to carry uh, its way when the, when, when, when the, dry, when the, when the tree is dry. Um, and so he's, he's, he's mourning over this impending judgment. The heart of God breaks when that happens. That's why Jesus earlier in another one of his pronouncements about Jerusalem said, how often I wanted to gather you under my wings and protect you. That's what God's heart is to protect, but you would not. You don't know the way of peace, and so you've rejected me, and so the consequences are going to be disastrous. Moving on, it says, Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified Jesus there, along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Uh, the uh, Two other Gospels mentioned that the name of this place was Golgotha in Aramaic, Luke is writing to a Gentile audience, so he doesn't assume that they know Aramaic, so he translates it, and the translation is skull. And it was presumably called the skull because it had sort of a shape of a skull, but also because that was one of the places where the, the Romans would, would, would crucify criminals. And then, to end this passage, it says, Jesus said, he's crucified there, he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Father, forgive them. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. It was uh, the Roman custom to, when you crucified somebody, to strip them of all their clothes. You were crucified naked. That was part of the humiliating process. This was a, uh, a, a form of execution that was designed to be a deterrent to other people messing with Rome. So they would not only inflict nightmarish pain on you, but they would humiliate you. So you were crucified naked. And for Jews, that was particularly humiliating because they were much more modest as a culture than, than the pagans were. And then the guards, after they'd stripped the condemned criminal of all of his clothes, as a form of mockery to show how little they cared about this, they would gamble, just cast dice to see who got to take home the clothes of, of the criminal, and that's what they're doing here. Was, these guards were hardened people. I mean, they did this several times a day. They were used to this. It meant nothing to them. And so they're laughing, they're joking, they're playing like a little card game, as it were, at the foot of the cross. So now get this picture. Here Jesus is being crucified. The way that you died, usually, on crucifixion was you suffocated. Because to get a breath of air, you had to lift yourself up against the spikes that were in your hands or wrists, 
and, and take a breath. And then you'd slump down again. And gradually that became impossible. You got too weary, and so you'd suffocate. Jesus here on this cross is going to use one of those precious breaths he has to work so hard to get. And he uses that breath to pray for the forgiveness of his executioners. While the guards are casting for his clothes and, and uh, the mockers are there, he prays for them. I sometimes wonder if they heard that. What would they have done? Like, it wasn't uncommon to have cr- condemned criminals using their last breath to curse uh, their adversaries. But here Jesus is praying for their forgiveness. For the forgiveness of the guards, the soldiers who whipped him, beat him, the people who spit on him. And ultimately it's for all of us because it was all of our sin that put him there. We're all, in that sense, his executioners. Jesus prays for our forgiveness. It is, I think, one of the most beautiful, one of the most amazing Maybe one of the most important prayers in the entire Bible. Jesus being crucified and what he's got on his mind is he doesn't want this sin to be laid against the, uh, they, his, his executioners. And it raises this question, and this is what I want us to think about here. Can we believe that God is that beautiful? Can we believe that Jesus expresses the heart of God when he prays this? Because the Bible says that, that Jesus, Hebrews 1.3, he's the perfect expression of the Father's essence. In uh, John, it tells us that Jesus never did anything that wasn't in accord with the Father's will. He says only what the Father leads him to say. And so can we believe that this really expresses the heart of God to forgive all? Is there a sense in which God has on the cross forgiven all? And can we learn to live in that kind of forgiveness? As we're imitators of Jesus and are called to live out uh, his, his love and his life towards all people. Can we learn to release all who are indebted to us for having wronged us the way Jesus does us? Lord, help us to see this. Okay, to start, there's two kinds of forgiveness in the New Testament, or at least the same word is used with two different nuances. And, and it's an important distinction. On the one hand, forgiveness just means to release someone of a debt. In uh, ancient Judaism, debt and sin were very similar concepts. They they overlapped a lot. When you sin against someone or sin against God, you incur a debt on yourself. And forgiveness is just a matter of releasing a person of that debt. You just release them. It doesn't matter whether they want to be released or not. It doesn't matter if they repent or not. You just release them. It's a unilateral, unconditional thing. Jesus, throughout his ministry, did this. We find, you know, when the guy was lowered through the ceiling, for example, and he was, he, he was paralyzed. Remember the story in Mark chapter 2. First thing Jesus says is, your sins are forgiven. Well, the guy didn't ask for forgiveness. He didn't plead for forgiveness or anything. Uh, and it shocked the crowd. They're saying, well, who is this that can forgive sins? And Jesus says, well, the Son of Man has power to release people of their sins. You're released. And then when the prostitute crashed that Pharisee party in Luke chapter 7, Jesus turns to her and says, your sins are forgiven. She didn't ask for it or anything. He just says, your sins are forgiven. It's, a, it's just a unilateral releasing. That's the one, one kind of forgiveness in the New Testament. There's another kind of forgiveness, uh, however. And, and this has more the connotation of restoring a relationship. When someone wrongs you, they create an obstacle in the relationship. And now forgiveness is about removing that obstacle. That kind of forgiveness is conditional because it requires the other person. Since it's about a relationship, it involves at least two people, and both have to agree to this. You can't forgive someone and remove an obstacle in a relationship unless they ask to be forgiven, unless they acknowledge that there's something that that, that needs to be forgiven. 
So in that sense, it's conditional. The second form of forgiveness, reconciliation, is conditional. The first form, however, is not. It's unilateral. It's very clear that Jesus, in praying the prayer that he prayed in the passage that we're looking at this morning, he's praying for the Father's unconditional forgiveness, and he's expressing the heart of the Father in doing it. He's not saying, Father, if these people repent, be reconciled to them. Because he's assuming that they haven't repented when he prays. The basis of his prayer is, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And so Jesus is saying, Lord, even though they don't know what they're doing, even though they don't think they're even sinning, they have no intention right now of repenting, they're mocking me despite all that, God, release them. Father, release them of this debt that they're incurring upon themselves. Stephen uh, was an early Christian missionary uh, who was martyred. And we find the same sort of Jesus' heart, the Father's heart, as he is being executed. The people were so hostile to the message he was preaching, they started stoning him. And just before he dies, he prays this in in Acts chapter 7. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He's getting very close to the end here. And then he falls on his knees and cries out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Amazing that here, just as he's dying a very, very painful death, his last thought is not for himself, but for the forgiveness of the people who are stoning him. And it's not because they've met any condition or have done anything to deserve this or anything like that. And he's not praying here for a reconciled relationship. No, he's just saying, Lord, don't hold this against them. Even though they're not repenting, even though they're murdering me, even though their hearts are hard, even though they think they're doing, they think they're doing your will, Father, release them. Release them. That is the kind of forgiveness that flows from Calvary. Lord, help us to see this, and it's beautiful. It's so important that we distinguish between forgiveness as release, unconditional release, versus forgiveness as a conditional reconciliation. Two, two very different things. If we don't keep that distinction clear... What happens, and this is in fact what happens more often than not, is the two begin to be fused together. And what can happen is that you begin to think that all forgiveness is conditional. In fact, one of the things that's motivating this message this morning is that uh, it's been brought to my awareness that 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 teaching is actually uh, being spread all over the place in evangelical circles. The understanding that it's wrong to forgive someone unconditionally. The teaching is that God forgives us only conditionally, and therefore we're supposed to forgive others only conditionally. So if the person doesn't repent, you don't forgive them. I think this is absolutely disastrous. Think about this. If that is true, then that would mean that Jesus and Stephen prayed bad prayers. They're asking the Father to do something that apparently, in this theology, the Father never does. And while I can easily accept that Stephen might have been a little bit misguided, I doubt Jesus was. Everything Jesus does is in accord with the Father's heart. But if all all forgiveness is conditional, well, then Jesus must have prayed a bad prayer, which leads me to think that there's something wrong with this theology. It would mean this. If all forgiveness is conditional, then that means that every single sin you've ever committed remains unforgiven until you explicitly repent of it. Every callous thought you've ever had, every every mean word you've ever said, every imperfect action you ever engaged in, every good deed that you failed to do, well, all of it is a debt that you incur to yourself that will not be removed unless you explicitly ask for forgiveness. 
And in, in, in some theological circles, it, it comes out to mean this. You're only as, as, as forgiven uh, and as saved as your last sinless moment. Think about it. The, the early, the, the, my first exposure to Christianity was in a group that, at least some believe this, this is what I was taught, that every sin separates us from God and you've got to confess it and you've got to repent of it, otherwise it still stays on you. And, and that kind of theology will drive you crazy. At least if you have any sort of healthy, honest, introspective capacities and you can honestly look at the goings on of your heart and the stuff that goes on in your mind, I mean... Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'll grant I'm a little more callous and sinful than most, but, but, but I, I would be getting saved and unsaved several times a day. It's terrible. I'm like a yo-yo, you know, in and out, in and out. And, and then you end up, you know, li- li- living part of your life like, like Kevin Klein on A Fish Called Wanda, where you're always asking, I'm, saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, sorry, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. So, so, so very, very, very sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. It just goes on and on and on. Ever see that show? <laughs> And this is supposed to be living the joyful life. You see, and then what happens if you forgot one, if you overlook something, which undoubtedly we do, then, then it's going to be held against you. You're gone. And the picture of God, it presupposes that theology. You, you get this kind of picture of God as sort of this, 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 this legalistic, neurotic, anal poindexter accountant in heaven on steroids. You know, it's just this... Yes, a, a neurotic, legalistic, anal poindexter accountant in heaven on demonic steroids. And, and, and here he is, he's, he's like, uh, he got a little checklist and every sin is there. And, and if, if you don't confess one, well, he's going to hold it against you, Mr. Boyd. You forgot this one. And what about this one? And on the judgment day, you get up there and he's like, well, you know, I know you love me and serve me and I died for you. But we have some details here to take care of. You didn't confess these sins right there. You blew it. That is not at all remotely like the God that's revealed in Jesus Christ on the cross when he just unconditionally prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. In the midst of their being unrepentant, he prays for their forgiveness. Atrocious picture of God's tragic. And what's also tragic is this. If you think that that's the way God forgives, always got to have the condition, well, then you imitate that, which is what this theology teaches. And that means you withhold forgiveness from anybody who hasn't repented. Now, you can't do that without having your accuser going on in your head, without judging them. You, 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 you know, you're just gonna, you judge that they are not worthy to be released. But what happens is if you're holding on to this idea that you owe me, and I'm not going to release you from this debt until you ask for it, well, now you invite the, the offender and the offense into your inner soul. Always there. And now the pain of what, what, what was done to you, the wrong that was done, you're internalizing that pain, and it's going to simmer there. They owe me. They owe me. And as it simmers there, it can't help but begin to bring forth rage and bitterness and animosity, and it begins to eat away at your soul like, it's, like this worm inside of you. And what you, what's happening is you are carrying around cancer. Unforgiveness is, is a, it's got this demonic illusion quality to it. Because on the one hand, it can make you feel empowered. And in this theology, you actually feel godly. Because I'm not going to forgive until they ask for it. And it makes you feel like you're empowered. They owe me. And you're going to hold that debt over them. When actually, it's disempowering you. In fact, it's destroying you. It feels like you are exercising your right to collect on a debt. They stole my honor or they stole my dignity or whatever, and, and I have a right to collect. And on strictly human terms, you do. So it feels like you're exercising your right, when in fact, the only one who's paying for the debt is you. 
The other person may not care a rip about, about the offense or even be aware that there's an offense, but you're paying that debt. And you're not going to give in until they ask for forgiveness. What happens if they die or they never ask for forgiveness? Now you're condemned to carry around that animosity your whole life. Someone put it like this. Unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. Bingo. (laughs) Amen. You think you're sticking it to them, but really the only one who's paying is you. By refusing to release the debt, you're empowering the other person to define you to that degree. By refusing to release the debt... You're really surrendering the keys to your well-being and freedom over to them. Why would you do that? It's so important that we release this debt as quick as possible. Just reflecting the kind of forgiveness that flows from Calvary to just let it go. Paul says this in Ephesians 4. I love this passage. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. When someone wrongs you, there's an anger there. Anytime something of value is devalued, it's appropriate to be, have anger. That's not a sin. You, are, you, you have unsurpassable worth, and when the way you're treated doesn't reflect that, it, it, it's going to make you angry, and it should. That's, that's not a sin. But if you go to bed with it, it is a sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't, don't, don't harbor that in your heart, because when you do that, Paul says, you're giving the devil a foothold. You've created a space in your life for the accuser to come in and start working his poison. And that's where the anger and the malice and the bitterness begins to come from and it begins to pollute your life and you can't compartmentalize that stuff. It starts to invade other areas of your life. It it, it just colors everything. Get rid of it now, Paul is saying. Let it go. Let it go. It doesn't mean that you're reconciled to the person. Sometimes you can't always reconcile before sundown. Sometimes you can't reconcile at all because it takes two people to do that. So it doesn't mean that you've got the obstacle in the relationship out of the way. It doesn't mean that, not, not, that, that, that you, now you're not going to trust the person. doesn't mean that you're not going to like the person. doesn't mean that you're now going to uh, want the person to babysit. doesn't mean that now you're going to want to get married to them again. No, it just means you release them. Just let it go. Just let it go. Now, we, we should strive to try to get as much reconciliation in our relationships as possible. Praise God when that can happen, but sometimes it can't happen. That's not all up to you. But what is up to you is letting go of the offense, turning that over to God. We should extend forgiveness, unconditional forgiveness, in the sense of release. Now, we should do that not just because it's good for our souls, though it is very good for our souls, but we should do it because that's the way that God forgives us. And throughout the Bible, we find teachings like this. Forgive others as the Lord has forgiven you. As God has done to you, so do unto others. It's no different than saying, live in love as Christ has loved us. His mercy just showers on us. We're to then extend that mercy to all others. When Jesus prays on the cross, it's not unconditioned that. He just just prays this, 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 this releasing in line with the Father's heart. It applies to all people. In fact, in some ways, Jesus' prayer reflects the meaning of his death. When Jesus dies, it's for everybody, and that's why his prayer is for everybody. That's why John says in 1 John chapter 2 that Jesus is, oh, Holy Spirit, help us to see this. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice, not just for our sins, but for the sin of the whole world. He's the atoning sacrifice, not just for those who acknowledge it and who repent of it and turn from it, No, but for every person, every sin of every person in every point of history, 
It's been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. There's a release that goes on that is absolutely universal. You can't put parameters around it. You can't put conditions on it. It doesn't mean that everybody's reconciled to God, obviously. But it does mean that what separates them from God is no longer the sin. That issue's been taken care of. It's their stubborn heart that maybe won't give in to this or won't say yes to that and wants to walk away from God. But the sin issue has been taken care of on Calvary which is why I can stand up here and look you in the eyes or speak into the ears of whoever else is listening and say this. It doesn't matter who you are and it doesn't matter what you've done. In Jesus' name and on the authority of the cross, the Father forgives you. The Father forgives you. The abortions that you've had, the Father forgives you. You're released. You're released from that. He's not holding that against you. Receive it. Walk in it. Time to be done carrying that baggage around all of your life. The way that you maybe wasted your life, drugs and alcohol, the Father forgives you. The way that you've tried to medicate yourself by being involved in sexual promiscuity, maybe damaging yourself and damaging others, the Father forgives you. The marriage that you blew up and the family that you destroyed, the Father releases you from that. He doesn't hold that against you. The murder that you committed, the child that you killed driving drunk, the Father releases you. There's no debt there. You may have a debt to society that society will extract, but from the Father, He releases you. He answers, the, he answers Jesus' prayer. He's the atoning sacrifice, not just for the sins of those who acknowledge it, but for the sins of the whole world. Every, every lie that you've told, every piece of gossip that you've spread, every slander that you've ever made, every self-righteous judgment that you've pronounced against other people, Every sin of every person throughout history, you are released. And so you receive that. And it's time to forgive yourself. And it's time to begin to move on. The devil will tell you, the devil will tell you that you can't be forgiven. The devil will tell you that you've got a debt to pay and you can never repay it. So the devil will tell you that you've got to atone for your own sins, so you've got to grovel all throughout life. The devil will tell you that the best you can do is limp through life rather than dance. But I'm here to tell you in Jesus' name that the devil is a liar. He's been a liar from the beginning. Receive the gospel truth. You are released. You are released. You are released. Now, now, now does, that mean, does that mean that God doesn't care about what we do? No, it doesn't mean that. No, he cares deeply about what we do. But see, the reason God cares deeply about what we do and the way we treat ourselves and the way we treat others is not because he's up in heaven saying, you owe me. That was taken care of on Calvary. The reason he cares about what we do is because it grieves his heart when we're involved in self-destructive behavior or in behavior that destroys other people. So he cares deeply about what we do, but not in terms of getting a payback or something of of, of the sort. Does it mean that what we did wasn't horrendous? Is this a way of minimizing the, uh, how, how bad our sin is? Not at all. No, no. It, what you did maybe was absolutely nightmarishly horrendous. In fact, in one sense, all of our sin is horrendous because every, every single one of them required God to become a human being and die on a cross to get us out of it. It was bad. It was bad. It says it doesn't minimize sin at all. But it does mean that now that he's done this for us, we're released from it. He's not holding that against us. He's not holding that against us. Does the fact that we've been released from our sin mean that everybody is saved? No, it doesn't mean that either. Because remember, there's a world of difference between being released on the one hand, that's, from, that, that's something God does, and being reconciled on the other. Salvation isn't just a matter of being reconciled. Salvation is about 
It's not just about a matter of being released. It's about being reconciled with God. It's about entering into a relationship with God. It's about getting the obstacle that separates you from God removed. And the obstacle now is not your sin. That's a symptom. That's not the, the major obstacle. The obstacle is your will. Will you submit to him? Salvation is about entering into a life-giving relationship with God. It's about learning how to be a dance partner with God. It's about living a life that's submitted to him. And if you're in a situation where you're not reconciled to him, then I encourage you this morning to get reconciled. You put your trust in Jesus Christ, you accept the forgiveness that comes from Calvary, and you commit your life to him, you submit to him. And if you're here this morning and are in that unreconciled situation... I'm not asking what do you believe. I'm asking how do you live your life? How is your life oriented? And if it's not oriented around Jesus Christ, I, I challenge you to submit your life to him right now. And if you do that, at the end of this service, I encourage you to come up here and talk to the people who will be up here and tell them about your decision. And then get involved in the, the, the Discover Jesus a class. Start learning about what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. At the right time, when you see this, then join the bride of Christ by being baptized and start living out the kingdom. As I said last week, to be unreconciled with God is to be in grave danger. It's not that God's up there saying, you owe me. No, no, he's released you of that. But now will you enter into a saving, reconciled relationship with him? Finally, does the fact that he releases us of our debt, does that mean that God doesn't see sin anymore or that God doesn't judge sin anymore? And the answer to that question, once again, is no, it doesn't mean that. God still sees sin. God still judges sin. But see, we're, 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 we've been, we've, many have gotten so messed up on, what, on this concept of, of God's judgment. Lord, help us to see this. Uh, we have screwy ideas about this. God still sees sin. He still judges sin. But the question is, what does that judgment look like? As, as with everything, when we're talking about God, it's so important to notice how you frame the question. It's a point I make quite frequently because it, 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 it screws up a lot of theology. When we think about God's judgment as with everything else, don't think court of law. There's a long tradition in the church of we, we construe everything between God and us in terms of a court of law. We see it as a legal matter. The Bible portrays it as a covenant matter, a relationship issue. So don't think court of law, think marriage. See, if you think about God's judgment and you have a court of law paradigm, what happens is that we are the guilty defendants, of course, and God is the cosmic judge, Judy, and we are in trouble. And then what the judgment means, what God's justice means is this. Uh, God wants payback. You sinned against God, you sinned against the court of heaven, and now you have to pay. Just like a judge may say, you have a debt to society, you have to pay. So now all judgment becomes a matter of God getting even, of God getting you to pay back uh, what you owe because of your sin. And then in the typical theology, what happens is the way God gets you to pay back is by uh, inflicting you with pain, sending a disaster, sending a hurricane or a tornado, or maybe striking you with cancer, or going after your little kid. And that misery is the way that you're supposed to atone or pay back what you owe God because of your sin. And that thinking is so deeply entrenched in the Western psyche that even atheists sometimes, when they go through some kind of catastrophic situation, may say things like, what did I do to deserve this? As though there's a judge, Judy, up in heaven. He's the zapper God, zapping people to judge their sin. As though the cross never happened. God sees sin, judges sin. But he's not about getting payback. If that was the case, then Jesus prayed a mistaken prayer. And Jesus, I don't think, ever prayed a mistaken prayer. 
Now, when we think about God's justice, as with everything else, don't think court of law. Think covenant. Don't think court of law. Think something more like a marriage. Judgment is not about breaking a rule that now you have to pay back and God has to get even by sending some kind of terrible consequence your way. It rather is, it rather is the terrible consequences that happen when we say no to God's marriage proposal. To say no to God's marriage proposal is to say no to the one who is the source of all life, and that is to choose death. To say no to the one who is the source of all joy, and that in and of itself is to choose misery. You find this theme running throughout the Bible. I'll give you a few examples of this. John 3, 19. He says this. This is the verdict. The word crisis there can mean judgment or the sentence. God pronounces a sentence. Here it is. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. That's the verdict. The verdict is this. God is light. If you choose darkness, well, then darkness is what you get. And he gives you the right to do that. If you love darkness, well, then God will, with a grieving heart, will, will let you go that way. And that is your judgment. That's why it says in, in Proverbs 8, the Lord says, All who hate me love death. To reject the one who is the source of all life is to choose death. That brings destruction on you. That's why the Bible says over and over, the wages of sin is death. It's just the natural consequence of what happens when you go your own way, want to be Lord of your own life, and want not live in a submitted reconciliation with God. God doesn't have to go out of his way to kill you. No, dying is just what happens when you say no to life. There's a natural relationship in God's created world, a natural relationship between cause and effect. Sin brings about its own destruction, and you find that theme running throughout the whole Bible. For example, in, in Psalm 7, listen to this very carefully. Those who are pregnant with evil conceive trouble and it gives birth to disillusionment. Natural cause and effect. Those who dig a hole and scoop it out fall into the pit they have made. God doesn't push you in the pit, you fall into it on your own. The trouble they cause recoils on them. Their violence comes down on their own head. There's a ricochet effect built into the nature of creation that, that you reap what you sow. How often do we read that in, in, in the Bible? This is the judgment of God. The relationship between sin and destruction is, is, is as natural, if you will, as the relationship between conceiving, getting pregnant, and giving birth, or digging a hole and, and then and falling into it. The violence that is in your heart comes back on you. The trouble that you create comes back on you. That is the judgment of God. God. God judges sin, but not in a sense of saying, you owe me, pay me back. He's bigger than that. He's the God who pronounces his unconditional release on the cross of Calvary, atoning for the sin of the whole world. He's released us from the debt. But we have to choose to get into the relationship there. He's not a God who's now exacting payment. Pay, he's not the cosmic debt collector. Which is why, if you are here and you are perhaps in a tragic uh, situation. Maybe you just found out that you have cancer or your child uh, died or, or, you know, there's nightmares that happened to us. Please, please, please don't think that you did something to deserve that. Maybe, maybe there's some horrendous things in your past, but God's not, he doesn't need to get even with you. He's not a get even God. He's not Judge Judy. I, no, he, that's not how he operates. In a fallen world that is a war zone like this one is, Crappy things just happen. You can trust that God is involved in it to bring good out of it, to console you, to teach, but God's not the zapper God who's out there trying to get even. 
Now, on Calvary, he entered into solidarity with our sins, suffered its consequences. So that is no longer the issue. God's got nothing against you. He's all together for you. The only remaining question is, is will you be for him? Will this release translate into a reconciled relationship where now you respond by submitting your life to him? Close your eyes for a moment. I'm going to ask two questions here very, very quickly. Two very, very important questions. The first one is simply this. Will you receive God's forgiveness, God's release? Your sin maybe was very, very bad. But will you trust that God's forgiveness, God's love, God's mercy, God's grace is greater than your sin? The Bible says that where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. Will you receive that? Just receive that. Maybe right now, think of, if you can, and this isn't pleasant, but it's important, the worst thing you've ever done. Maybe it's a total secret. Maybe no one knows, but God knows. The worst thing you've ever done. Maybe a, a relationship that you destroyed or a person that you harmed and you can't, you can't redo it. There's no go-backs. Can conceive of that sin. And now imagine as you're holding that sin in mind, Jesus on the cross. And hear him say to you, the Father forgives you. The Father forgives you. You are released. This is not going to be held against you. And there may be in your mind this, but, 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 but what about, but what about, I can't repair this, I can't undo this. And just hear the Lord say, trust me, trust me. You're forgiven, you're released. God is not the cosmic debt collector. Learn from the past, grow from the past, and then surrender it over to God. Receive that forgiveness. Secondly, in light of the fact that God has forgiven you this way and released you of all debt, will you release everybody else from all debt? In the year of Jubilee, all debts were unconditionally erased. We're to be Jubilee people. Will you let go of the debt? Think for a moment of maybe someone who's wronged you. Are you still holding on to the debt? Is there still a you owe me sort of attitude there? Can you release them? Will you release them? It may be something that's done in the past that wounded you terribly. Maybe something that's going on in the present. Someone's mistreating you. Maybe a relative or maybe a national enemy like Osama bin Laden. Will you just release them over to God? It doesn't mean that you're going to be reconciled to them because that takes two. It doesn't mean that you'll trust them or because some people just are not trustworthy. It just means that you're not going to walk around as a debt collector. Remind yourself that you've been forgiven a debt that's infinitely greater than any debt you're now releasing anyone else from. Remember that. And remember that by not letting go, the only one who's paying for it is you. So reflecting the attitude of Jesus and Stephen, will you just release him? Just release him. Let him go. Turn them over to God. If any judgment is needed in their life, God will see to it. But that's God's business, not yours. Father, right now. And as I pray, I'd like to ask the prayer team to come forward. 
And if, if you're here and have any need whatsoever that you'd like to have prayed for, I encourage you to come up and pray with these folks. Or if you want to surrender your life to Christ, come up here and, and do so with these, these folks. Father, as we leave this place, I pray, Lord God, that we would be debt-free. Oh, God, help us to trust that you are not a debt collector, that you have released us. And then, Lord, help us to be a people who live freed from the temptation to be debt collectors. Have a clean slate to let go, to never let the sun go down on our rage or our anger. Help us to dance in the freedom of your unfathomable grace and to be dispensers of your unfathomable grace. Protect our hearts and our minds from the accuser who always tries to get in there and so is judgments that want us to take back that you owe me attitude. Oh God, help us to let it go. Let it go. Let it go. For freedom, you have set us free. Help us to stand fast in the beauty of that freedom. And all of God's people said, amen. God bless you guys. Go out and live in freedom. Don't forget, you're open to signing up for the small groups. We'd like to have you do so at the hub. God bless you.